One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is made by Just Speak and Popsock Media with Renews. The stories shared here represent individual opinions and experiences, and some names have been changed. This episode contains references to drug addiction, transphobia, racism, suicide, and violence. There's also some strong language. So Mount Eden's just all artificial lighting. You develop like a sort of grey, really palish, sick-looking complexion while you're in there. I didn't see sunlight at all. There's no outlet. Like, your only outlet is getting angry. Anger, frustration... All those emotions just came out sideways. Welcome back to True Justice, a series advocating for a more just justice system in Aotearoa. My name is Anahaya Scottney. And I'm Tommy Doran. And this is episode two broken the mechanics of the system in the last episode we took you through what it feels like to be arrested and processed in this one we're going to settle in for an idea of what day-to-day life is like on the inside this episode is a big kaupapa we're going to be talking history legislation and policy so it's dense but it is important so we're going to start by taking a look at the origin story of prison in Aotearoa To do that, we're going to have to wind back to pre-1840, when there weren't any prisons. Before Europeans arrived, there were no prisons in Aotearoa. Māori didn't use prisons, we had our own law, which is better known as tikanga. Tikanga is a set of rules and principles that govern the behaviour and customs of people in Māori society, and a breach of tikanga was usually addressed via utsu, There's a real misconception about what utsu means. A lot of people think of it like revenge, but that's not right. The root idea of utsu is about providing compensation or redress to restore balance when a mistake or transgression occurs. When it came to what that might actually look like, it was up to the community to decide. But European settlers brought their own legal system inherited from Britain, and with it came prison. The first prisons in Aotearoa were built a few weeks after Te Tiriti was signed, and they were filled super quickly with people who were then put to work building our cities. This includes Manor Street in Wellington, Queen Street in Auckland, and with the hard labour of Māori men who were unlawfully detained during the illegal invasion of Parihaka, the Octagon, in Dunedin. At first, a good proportion of the prison population was Pākehā, but then over time, the makeup changed. If the prison population had the same proportional ethnic makeup as our society outside of prison, 16% of inmates would be Māori and 8% Pacifica. But both groups are overrepresented. Instead of 8%, Pacifica make up 12%. And instead of 16%, Māori make up 53% of the overall prison population. Somebody suggested I, my real title is a doctor, doctor, sir, Kim Workman. This is Tarkim Workman, or that's what he prefers to be called anyway. It has a more softer feel to it. It's more like a komatua status, really. 
Tarkim Workman has whakapapa links to Ngāti Kahungunu ki Wairarapa and Rangitāneo Wairarapa, and he's been in the justice sector since he was a young fella. He was actually the instigator behind Just Speak, which is the organisation making this podcast. Takim has worked in so many different parts of the justice sector, starting with the police, which he joined in 1958. Back then, policing policy was pretty hard line. Anyone that looked like an outsider was alien and needed to be watched carefully and uh, intimidated. Uh, you know, with young urban Māori coming into the cities, what I witnessed was a huge impact on them and and between 1954 and 1958 the level of Māori youth arrest and and charging increased by 50%. Takim resigned as a senior sergeant in the police in 1976 during the period of the dawn raids when the racism just got too much for him. And he reckons that racism is deeply entrenched. A close examination of police history in New Zealand shows a primary reliance on a policing style common to all colonising nations. So, in other words, colonial police forces were not created to, to maintain public peace or to, to wage a war on crime or to engage in community crime privilege or become guardians of public safety. They were created by the state as agencies of social control and to impose the will of the state upon unwilling subjects. So it was overtly political, supporting and enforcing the coercive control of the indigenous population. This stuff gets me pretty fired up, bro. To hear this story from someone who's worked on the inside is quite powerful, eh? Yeah, totally. And it's all really complex, so we won't dive into it too much right now. That's the micro version. But just as a summary, we've gone from having no prisons to a few prisons filled with mostly Pakiha to what we have today. 18 adult correctional facilities housing just over 7,600 prisoners, the majority of whom are not Pakiha. Thank you for sharing those stats, bro. Yeah, all good. Um, That'll do for our history lesson for now. So we're only in episode two, but I'm starting to get the impression that going through the justice system is dicey. Yeah, absolutely it is. And I'm guessing that prison is even tougher on you if you're a part of a population that's already vulnerable. So say you were brought up in poverty or if you inherited a bunch of inequities via colonisation... Or if you're struggling with addiction or poor mental health. Or if you're a part of the rainbow community. So from memory, my first encounter with the justice system would probably be with driving offences. This is Olivia. Olivia is nearly 40 and she grew up in Henderson in West Auckland. When she was a kid, Olivia's parents worked really hard to make sure that she and her siblings never went without. But they were emotionally distant. Olivia is transgender which she says was just unheard of in the mid to late 90s. So Olivia spent a lot of time comparing herself to others and feeling like she didn't fit in. So what I did is I learned that taking something externally made me feel better about myself. That just happened to be substances. Some people use the gym, some people use shopping. Yeah, that was my poison and 
it never let me down. It gave me a false sense of um, confidence. It did everything that I couldn't do myself. Olivia became addicted to methamphetamine, which was a big contributor to her pathway to prison. That's something that keeps on popping up, eh, is meth or pee addiction. It's a huge issue here in Aotearoa, eh? Yeah, and it's growing. As of 2021, more than half of all drug charges were related to meth, and the number of people facing those charges had doubled in a decade. And meth-related doesn't necessarily have to mean possession or dealing. A lot of these charges are dishonesty offences. Basically, doing you know something stupid to pay for your drugs, uh, like I used to. But back to Olivia. Part of what made going to prison that much more harmful was the fact that Olivia was sent to a men's prison. As you know, prisons are traditionally divided into men's and women's. But as we've come to understand more about gender, we've had to ask more questions about who gets left behind and who's represented not just trans people, but also for non-binary whānau, takatāpui and any number of marginalised genders. And those conversations have been a really important part of making sure policy and processes change so our trans whānau in prison can be supported. But back when Olivia was in prison, things were still pretty rough. Her first time, Olivia was held on remand at the old Mount Eden prison, The Rock. It was dark, it was scary, you know, it looked like you were going into a dungeon. You were strip-searched when you got there, and then you were given grey tracksuits that smelled like they'd never been washed. And then you were put into a cell where there was, like, it was damp, it was cold, there was nothing in it, there was a toilet right where you sleep. You know, I I get that you're not there on a holiday camp, (laughs) but there's a reason why it's not still in operation today. The Rock closed down in 2011 and a new facility was opened next door, the Auckland Central Remand Prison, which is what we used to call ACRAP. And then they actually opened another new building next door, the Mount Eden Correctional Facility, and this is where Olivia started her main lag in 2012. So our audience doesn't get too confused, can we just refer to all of the buildings there as Mount Eden? Yeah, for sure. So at different times, Mount Eden was either under the management of the Department of Corrections or CERCO. You might have heard of CERCO. So they're a private security company who got into trouble for fight clubs. Yeah, that's right. They lost their contract to manage Mount Eden after footage emerged of gang-organised fights between inmates, which were being filmed on contraband phones and posted online, and which the screws were turning a blind eye to. Please tell me Olivia didn't go through any fight clubs. Nah, she didn't, thankfully. But being in a men's prison did put her in a lot of danger. You've gone into this completely unknown environment where testosterone and power is of importance. With testosterone and power inevitably comes violence. And Olivia reckons a big part of the particular violence she faced in men's prison was because of her gender identity. Yeah, I think um, it was confronting for some people. You know, I would stand up for myself, and when I was verbally abused, I would give it back. They didn't like it. I was attacked twice in the men's prison, once by three gang members, and another time by just general public of the prison. There are some processes in prison to help support people who might be in particular danger there, like cease movements. 
That's a prison lockdown, eh? Yeah, basically. No one can move around for a period of time, and it can happen for all different reasons. But sometimes they'll do it because they need to move someone who's at risk of being attacked. OK, so it was to protect Olivia. Yeah, but Olivia reckons sometimes the guards used it against her. There was only one programme that was available for GLBT people, and that was when another trans person came in as a support worker and ran a one-hour group. We would all get together and we'd meet all the other GLBT people from different units and we'd all be in one room together. And that was on a Thursday afternoon at 1.30. 1.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday would also be yard time for some of the high-security mainstream prisoners. But they couldn't go to the yard because there was a, a cease movement. So what the officers would then do is purposely walk you past the unit that was not allowed to go to the yard so they could see who the person was stopping them from going to the yard. And you'd just be abused, constantly abused, um, called real nasty names and stuff like that. We reached out to Serco, who were unable to retrieve records of incidents that occurred at the time they were managing Mount Eden Corrections Facility. Serco's current policy on trans inmates is the same as corrections. Trans inmates are either placed in a cell on their own, or if the prison director approves it, two trans people with the same gender identity can choose to be placed in a shared cell. Yeah, except more than once Olivia says the guards put another person in with her, and not another trans woman. There were a couple of times that I was um, in a cell by myself, and then... Um, someone that um, identified as a gang member or somebody that just was like, put me in her cell for the night or put, sell me up with her and then the guards would. And then they would see how, how it would play out and what would happen, like it was a game. So now I just want to reintroduce my friend Blaine quickly. You might remember him from episode one. He's the guy I was talking with about getting nightmares over the guards mocking us through processing. There's no please or thank you. It's who can kick the door the loudest. Yeah, that guy. So, quick backstory. Blaine was struggling with meth addiction too. He was living in Melbourne when he got hooked, and after he came back to New Zealand in November 2014, things spiralled really quickly. I was caught in an operation um, for selling methamphetamine, and I was in jail in June, and um, yeah, that's basically where the like my demise kind of started. It was Blaine's first time in jail, so he was pretty freaked out, but he knew not to let on. You just can't show that you're sad or upset, like you can't. The only thing you can show is if you're angry, because that's the only thing that'll get you not beaten up. I just put a mask on the whole time I was in prison, like I, I was... Yeah, I was clean off drugs and alcohol, but I wasn't clean off my behaviours, you know. I was, I was trying to be someone I wasn't, even though I was just like a scared little boy, really. Now, this is something you hear quite a lot. Yeah, it's just putting on a mask, putting on the front. You can't be walking around looking like you want to cry or whatever. This is Rangi, who you met in the last episode. Yeah, you have to leave that at the door, leave that at the gate. Easy target, you know, easy target, and um, you get, well... You get looked at as like, ah, oh, yeah, just a pussy, fucking whatever, you know, excuse my language. Yeah. Because there's a lot of politics and stuff in there. Yeah, so that's what 
most of the, the fighting about is about who gets the right to sell drugs or, you know, uh, all that sort of carry-on. Who runs the show in here? Who's the top dog? Who's the fucking, you know, all that sort of carry-on. You have your, your guard up all the time. You know, something can pop off at any time. Person that you thought was your mate, he can just, like, you know, knock you over for something so minimal, like an apple or something. You know, but that's just because some there's a lot of other underlying issues there. According to corrections, 91% of people in prison, I repeat, 91% have been diagnosed with a mental health disorder, a substance use disorder, or a traumatic brain injury at some stage in their lives. Do you know what this is making me think is of the queer whānau in there who are already at a higher risk of poor mental health outcomes and sexual violence? If it was this tough navigating this super macho space for guys like Rangi and Blaine, imagine what it would have been like for someone like Olivia. You're constantly having to watch yourself. I felt unsafe. I suffered from mental illness. I ended up with depression and anxiety. I already had at that stage um, being transgender, um, gender dysmorphia, where I struggled to accept my body. And then they would strip search you constantly. So whenever you'd go to another unit, they would be like, okay, random strip searches, and they would always single out people that obviously had issues or they thought that they would get some type of entertainment out of. The other issue I encountered at the old Mount Eden was the showers were open. So when it was shower time, like unless you were prepared to shower with absolutely everybody, you went without a shower. On numerous occasions, I begged to be able to have my shower alone or when the rest of the prisoners went to the yard, which was like cattle being moved from one field to another. Did they ever allow you to shower? Were you ever able to get the privacy? If there were enough guards on, yes. We reached out to Serco, who were unable to comment on specific allegations, but say that the issues alleged in this podcast would not be acceptable in Kohuora. That's the prison they run now, as they are contrary to their values, code of conduct and expectations of staff. They said a complaint of this nature would be treated as a very serious matter. So in the last episode, you talked about getting a cellmate who showed you the ropes, Tommy, and how lucky you were to have that. But that's not actually standard, eh? Nah, and as well as all the new processes to learn, like the kiosk, the canteen, medical, phone calls, etc., there's random stuff you might not even think of, like water restrictions. So you get two six-minute showers and eight flushes of the toilet. This is Becca. You met her briefly in the last episode. She's talking about the 16 hours she spent in her cell every day. Yeah, that's well. That's all the water they allow, and then I think it might be like eight, six times for the tap. So if you run out of water, or run out of flushes, or run out of showers, that's yeah, till the next day when it clicks over. If you got your period, you'd have to go and ask the guards for a pad. Um, they'd only give you ration you certain amounts. We asked corrections about the rationing of water and other supplies. They said there is no rationing of drinking water. There may be instances in the summertime where we try to reduce water usage in line with council water restrictions. 
Prisoners are able to request the other items mentioned from custodial staff whenever they need them, and they will be provided as soon as practicable. But those we spoke to said these requests were barely ever dealt with quickly. Here's Jamie. I remember going and asking one of the guards, can I please have a toilet roll? We've only got like a little bit of toilet roll left. And she goes, well, where's your empty one? And I said, well, it's nearly empty, but it's not actual empty. And she's like, well, you don't give me the empty toilet roll, you don't get another toilet roll. That's how it works. And even like tampons, like some of the girls in the unit were smoking tampons. And so tampons like became like a restricted item. You get like one tampon. I don't even know what the whole thing is with smoking tampons. That's weird. But yeah, so it's like everybody suffered because of that. This is something that I hadn't ever thought about. But there's no smoking in prisons. Yeah, absolutely. When I was inside, we'd make things called toughies. <laughs> What's a toughie? Uh, it's like a homemade ciggy. So um, basically you use like a steaming process to infuse tea leaves with the nicotine from nicotine patches. But they've started to catch on to this, so now there's no nicotine patches either. They do provide nicotine replacement therapy lozenges for a month, but they're harder to smoke. What about drugs then? Because Rangi mentioned that they're around, and Jen managed to stay high for a couple of remand lags. So what's the story with drugs inside? Oh yeah, drugs were definitely around. I remember being tempted, but you know, prison is so claustrophobic, I was like, why would I want to get fried in here, you know? So I bought sleeping pills off other inmates just to sort of pass the time, because time really slows down in prison. Here's Olivia. Things took so long to get a phone call, your phone number's approved. Um, visit request forms sent out. All the major issues, it just took so long, months, to be able to get some type of contact with friends and family. Yeah, all the paperwork just moves so slowly, and the worst is the complaints process. So as a prisoner, you have the right to complain if you feel you are being mistreated, but they don't make the process easy. A couple of ombudsman reports from 2020 showed that complaints forms, or PCO1s as they're called, weren't available at Waikiria and Auckland prisons when inspectors showed up unannounced. Correction staff had to be asked to print some off. Classic. And if you do manage to file one, the screws will do whatever they can to get the complaint to go away. This is something a lot of people talk about. You were able to fill out PCO1s and then start negotiations of bribery in order to get things that you needed. For example, bras, knickers and stuff like that, which were prohibited items in a men's prison. We asked Circo about this. They said the same thing as they said about the showering and putting other people in Olivia's cell with her, that this behaviour isn't acceptable under their code of conduct. But Olivia didn't feel like her complaint was resolved, so much as brushed under the carpet. And then they would kind of come out and smooth talk you and offer you something or, you know, in order for you to retract your complaint. We've heard similar stories from people in prisons managed by the Department of Corrections. We asked them for comment and they said, we're not aware of any of these specific allegations but would be very disappointed if they were true. We are committed to taking all complaints seriously and would always encourage people to raise any concerns with us. Corrections do recognise the current complaint system isn't working. They released a report in January 2022 which called it confusing, stressful and said it basically does not work well for anyone. So they're in the process of redesigning it. Hopefully the new system works a little bit better, eh? Hey Tommy, aside from the cleaning work that you were doing, 
on a day-to-day basis, what do you actually do in prison? Uh, honestly, I, I've personally found ways to fill in the time. For me, it was mostly uh, working out, but, you know, people gamble, um, people walk laps. Unlocked at 8, locked up at 11.30, unlocked at 2, locked up at 4. Here's Olivia again. Walk around and around and around and around in circles. You watch TV, read a book. You wouldn't want to read too fast because, like, you didn't know when you got to go to the library next. <laughs> so, you know, you didn't want to finish your book too quickly. We never got to see outside. We very rarely got to go to, the, to a yard where you could run around. You know, guys would run around in circles or run up and down stairs to get some fitness in. They were just left to their own devices and anger, frustration, all those emotions just came out sideways. I trained. I trained all day, every day. This is Rangi again. And I just had my own routine that I'd done. Read books, trained hard, played a bit of sport, and then, yeah, whatever else, fit it in. <laughs> I'll tell you, the, uh, my time spent in prison would have been like some of the, the, the best I've ever looked. Yeah, yeah, I relate to this myself. <laughs> when I got out, I was in the best place physically that I'd been probably ever. I mean, mentally and emotionally, I was still a child, but man, I was fit. <laughs> but that reminds me, Tommy, there's this bit from one of your interviews that I don't think I'll be able to forget. I reckon we should play it. So Mount Eden's just all artificial lighting. Uh, you, you develop like a sort of grey, really palish, sick-looking complexion while you're in there. I call it the Mount Eden tan. <laughs> The Mount Eden tan, so everyone in there is looking sickly, kind of like ghostly, but ripped ghosts. Is that the vibe? <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, because there's no mirrors in Mount Eden, you don't really know how bad your tan is. Olivia actually mentioned this too. She didn't see any sunlight for about 10 months, and then she was moved to somewhere with mirrors. My skin was almost see-through from no sunlight. It was, I looked very ill like you're, you can see your veins so people are grappling with their mental health they're literally getting no vitamin D with not much to take up their time aside from working out what gets you through like aside from training or maybe slow reading a book and developing a zen practice what are the things that you do to look after yourself in that environment well some people write letters or um, some people pick up something creative I used to write and that was the first time I ever got, like, honest about my feelings and emotions or anything. It was through writing. They were, like, just short stories or poems. Or... This is my bro, Paul. Yeah. He actually had a few friends and family in jail at the same time as him. What else? The sense of brotherhood that you'd find in there. You know, there's, there's plenty of banter in there. Some good jokers. You find happiness in the smallest of things. Um, once you realise that um, you've had everything stripped from you, it could be a pair of socks, you know, because you have to wait a long time to get a pair of socks. And if you don't have support outside, then you probably don't get a pair of socks. So socks and undies, that was always a joy. So it's just the smallest things you start to be grateful for, I guess, or well, I, I do anyway. Did you find a sense of brotherhood or camaraderie in there as well? 
Um, I mean, sort of, you know, like I've definitely made a few good friends in there. Some I'm still in contact with, some I'm not. But, um, you know, often what happens in there is you'll go wherever you can find connection. And in prison, that can mean gangs. So that was a close call for me personally. And I mean, honestly, if things hadn't gone a bit differently, I might have gone down that path. But for me, it just didn't pan out that way. Okay, Tommy, look, I think that this is a good time to delve into the hefty beast that is remand. I know it's quite a hearty kaupapa, but let's all crack into it so that we can really understand what it means. So take us away. So as we said in the last episode, remand is when you're held in custody while you wait for your court date. This might be in police cells, court cells, in a psychiatric facility, or most often in prison. This blew my mind when I first heard it. I just didn't understand that there are people in prison in Aotearoa that haven't even been found guilty of a crime yet. They're just suspended in limbo land. That's actually nearly 40% of the prison population right now. Remand is a serious issue worldwide. So how long might someone be on remand for? Are we talking hours, days? What's the time frame? The average amount of time in 2020 was 76 days. So sometimes it's months or even years. And the remand part of prison is harder than the actual sentence for lots of reasons. How can I explain remand? It's probably the most horrible experience of anyone's life. This is Blaine again. You're literally in there for 23 hours a day. You get 40 minutes out in the morning and then they always in the afternoon because you're locked down for two hours at lunch. Mm. Every time at lunch they'll come for a microphone and say, not, not enough staff, you're not allowed, you're not getting out in the afternoon. Mm. It's just ruthless. So we asked corrections about this, and they told us that one hour is the minimum unlock time each prisoner is entitled to. Where possible, they said, we try to unlock these prisoners as much as possible, but operational requirements may limit our ability to do that on a regular basis. And things like short staffing and COVID have definitely had an impact. In remand, rehabilitation programmes and courses feel either non-existent or really difficult to access. You get no rehabilitation, you get no courses to do, you get no, you don't see the outside, you don't see grass, like you don't have a toilet seat, you have to ask for cutlery, you have to ask for toilet paper. It's like the most demoralising thing that it just, and you're just in this concrete box for 23 hours. Like, do you know how boring daytime TV is on 1, 2 and 3? Like, there's nothing to do, you can't buy anything, you can't, there's no gym, there's no... You can do push-ups, I guess, and squats, you know, like, there's no outlet. Like, your only outlet is um, getting angry and, um, like, that revolt against the system. Yeah, Blaine's bang on with that. There's no outlet. My time in Mount Eden when I was waiting for my sentencing, there was just nothing there. Like, nothing at all? Seriously, there was, like, a library card I saw once or twice with a bunch of tattered books. If I could change anything overnight, it would definitely be one of the things at the top of my list more on offer to remand prisoners. We asked the Department of Corrections Chief Custodial Officer Neil Beals about remand. We'd love to do more stuff with people on remand, but we need to design something that is kind of short term that can be captured within the, you know, the time that people are on remand. But I know that has been increasingly quite right. Um, and some people have stayed on remand for you know, ridiculously long periods of time. So he's saying it can be hard to offer programmes when you don't know how long someone's going to be in for, which... I guess I understand, but still, that's so hard for the people who are actually living through it. Yeah, absolutely. And Corrections' own official policy says remand prisoners should be given learning opportunities like learning about managing money and parenting. 
They're also supposed to get help with their addictions. Yeah, so it's there in writing. It should be available. It's literally the most infuriating place that you just, three months you just left in the rock. I had a, a associate, four and a half years he was in remand, four and a half years. I think he got guilty of some things and he was time served, you know, because he did the four and a half years already for like, he was a really nice guy. And now he's just, he's a bad human being. He's not a good person. You wouldn't introduce him to your grandparents. Just to clear that up, time served means you've done enough time for what you were found guilty of and you can go home. According to the Ministry of Justice, only 59% of people kept on remand receive a custodial sentence. The rest are time served, not guilty, charges dropped, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, 4 out of 10 have served their whole sentence in the dispiriting time vortex of remand. And a big part of why our remand numbers are so high is because of the Bail Amendment Act. This act was brought in in 2013 by the national government in response to a really tragic murder that happened while the offender was out in the community on bail. The intention was to protect the community from potentially violent offenders by making it tougher for them to be granted bail. The act reversed the burden of proof, so before then, someone who'd been accused would be released to wait for their trial unless the prosecutor could prove that it was too risky. More of a classic case of innocent until proven guilty. But afterwards, that same person wouldn't be released unless they could prove that they pose basically zero risk. But for a bunch of reasons, the Act hasn't just affected those accused of violent offences. So, for example, lots of people up on Class A drugs charges also need to be able to prove that if they're bailed, they won't be at any risk of using drugs. How do you prove that? And when it comes to accommodation, say you want to be bailed to your house, but for whatever reason, the electronic monitoring gear won't work there, you're held in custody on remand. So now we've got people in remand for like burglaries, traffic offences, fraud or offences against justice. And in the time since the Act passed, our remand population has gone from 27% to 39%. And unless something changes, our remand population is set to outstrip our sentenced population by 2030. Neil Beals, the corrections guy, said something else which I think helps explain why so many people feel like they're treated harshly on remand. Um, we do have a system where if we do know how somebody, because you know, we've dealt with them previously um, through the remand management model, we can manage somebody in a lesser security areas. A lot of people who come in on remand are unknown to us, so we don't know a lot about them. Um, generally, when they come in, um, they, they are managed under the same kind of um, risk model as somebody who's high security because we don't know them and we don't know how, how risky they may be. So even if you're just being held for a minor offence, you're going to be treated like a maximum security prisoner. Yep, that's right. See, I can be much shorter about that, you know, e it, it is broken. This is Associate Professor Kylie Quince talking about the criminal justice system. Kylie taught at Auckland University for 23 years, and she's the current Dean of Law at AUT, Auckland University of Technology. Kylie is the first wahine Māori to have that position. She's Ngāpuhi, Ngāti Puro, Ngāti Kahungunu and grew up in Mount Roskill. I don't think there are many people that have any great support or love for it. I think there's general acceptance that it's, it doesn't work, it's not just, it's not fair. And when Kylie talks about the system being broken, she's not just talking about prisons. It's important to, to acknowledge that when we talk about the criminal justice system, we're talking about multiple agencies, multiple actors and agents within those agencies. 
like Oranga Tamariki, the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Justice, the Department of Corrections, the Serious Fraud Office, Crown Law, the Police and the Courts. So it's not this sort of monolithic thing. There are, you know, dozens of sort of tentacles, if you like, certain kinds of groups, whether they be, you know, poor people, brown people, young people, males, are much more likely to be filtered into those systems than others. That's a massive systemic issue. There's so much evidence to support what Kylie's saying about how certain people are more likely to be filtered into all these systems than others. And again, this is stuff we're going to dive more into in coming episodes. But if some groups are more likely to end up interacting with our justice system, the approach to fixing all of this can't be one size fits all. Lock them up and throw away the key. Yeah, exactly. You can't say you do the crime, you do the time, when police are almost twice as likely to send a first-time Māori offender to court than someone who is Pākehā. You can't call for arming the police when people who aren't Pākehā appear more likely to be harmed by police. You can't talk about the individual choices that land someone in prison when the choices available to some are so much more limited than for others. That narrative is totally swallowed by offenders and inmates too, you know. They will always tell you, I'm here because I deserve it. Um, I'm the black sheep in my family. That's my favourite narrative. I'm the black sheep in my family. Oh, are you? Um, has your father been in prison? Yes. Has your brother been in prison? Yes. Uncles? Yes. Grandfather? Yes. Cousins? Yes. So well, that's a lot of black sheep in your little family, isn't it? And you don't think that's a coincidence? You, know? you don't think that's a pattern? But they have also swallowed the Kool-Aid of individual culpability um, and meritocracy, that they just could, that they are the sum of their own failures, you know, um, and that they had choices. Uh, we just need to blow that ship right up and say, you know, no. I know what the haters will say is, yeah, but this person did this really terrible thing. And they you generally acknowledge that. At some time, they acknowledge that themselves. But the bigger question is, so what are we going to do about it? That feels like a stunning question to end it on. What are we going to do about it? Hopefully, by the end of this series, we can have some answers to that pathway. Yeah, I feel pretty confident that we can. Thank you so much for hanging in there with us, team. Coming up in the next episode of True Justice. They said, look, down the, um, my waters are breaking. And they said, get up on the table, we'll deliver your baby then. And I said, I'm not delivering my baby in a court cell. And it's been the support of other people who um, have helped me to be able to achieve all the things that I have. There were warning signs of him not being okay. Uh, I have a purpose now, and it pulls me forward. This episode of True Justice was hosted by me, Tommy Doran. And me, Anachaya Scottney. It was produced by Just Speak, a not-for-profit organisation that advocates for transformational change in the criminal justice system. Writing and research was a team effort by staff at Just Speak and PopSock Media, as well as former Just Speak advocacy lead Emily Rosenthal. Editing and sound design was by PopSock Media with music from Blue Dot Sessions and the theme music What You Can Hear Now by Kōtiro. That's me with Thomas Arbour. You can find our song All the Little Birds on Bandcamp. Interviews and recordings with our storytellers and experts were done by Emily Rosenthal, Chantal Arfina, myself and our amazing Just Speak volunteers. Narration, recording and mixing was by Phil Brownlee at Victoria University's Miramar Creative Centre. 
Our journalistic and legal checks and balances came from Francis Morton, Anna Harcourt and the legal team at TVNZ's youth news platform, RE, who supported this project. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.